We hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful God, we give you thanks for your word. Your word, which is a light to our feet. Your word, which convicts us. Your word, which has power. We pray that through your word this morning, you would continually transform us by the power of your spirit working in and through us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You know, there was a a Christmas commercial a few years back that only aired in Europe that, that got really popular on the old internet. And this commercial uh, begins by focusing in on, on an old man in uh, Poland. And uh, he gets this package delivered to him and it's this present and he unwraps it and it's this English book. And he's, you see him sitting there trying to, to read these words. And then a few days later, he gets another package and he opens it up and it's a computer software program and, and headphones and in this so he could learn English and it shows him sitting down at the computer with the headphones on, you know, doing the things, saying the words out loud. And then uh, in the next scene, you see him putting, you know, sticky notes all over his house, you know, pot, table, fridge, even the, even the dog gets a sticky note as he's trying to learn these English words. And then a, a little while later, you see him, you know, packing up his bags and he gets to the airport and he, he flies and he flies into what appears to be London. And uh, he gets dropped off at this house. He knocks on the door and presumably his son answers the door and he gives him a hug and his daughter-in-law comes and he gives her a hug. And then you see the grandfather kind of walk into the hallway, kind of looking for somebody. Then at the back of the the house, he kneels down, he sees his granddaughter. And he says the words he's been practicing uh, for for months now. He says, hi, I'm your grandpa. And he gives her this big hug. And it's this really touching story about this grandfather who goes through such lengths to know his granddaughter on on her level, to be able to speak her language, to stoop down and to make himself accessible. And astonishing and as touching as a a story like that is, how much more astonishing is it that God actually does the same thing with you and I? It's, It's astonishing that God does this with us, that God stoops down to introduce himself to us, to know us so that you and I can know him. And I think oftentimes we think about knowing God, we, we assume that, that we're the ones that have to go to him, that we have to learn his language, we have to find where he dwells, we, you know, maybe we have to pray in just a certain way uh, to, to get to know him so that he can come to us, but this isn't the picture of God that actually the Christmas story paints for us. This Christmas story is not about us finding that some magical way to, to reach out to God, it's not about finding some magical gateway but it's about God who reaches down to us, his people. In the birth of Christ, what we find is God's character on full display that he is the God who pursues his people. It's a powerful thing to consider that 
that, that Christmas is about the eternal God, the God who created all things, actually entering his creation, speaking the language of his creatures, that you and I might know him. And as we explore, you know, this, the, the coming of Jesus Christ in the, in the gospel of John this morning, I was going to ask three questions of our text. And it's, there's this, the, the first is this, that who is this Jesus who came? How did this Jesus come? And why did this Jesus come? So first, who is this Jesus who came? And I think there, there's two aspects to who Jesus is on display for us. The first is that he is the word. We see this at the beginning of, of John 1. It says, in the beginning was the word. And we find out later in John, in John 14, that the word is talking about Jesus. And so Jesus is the word. Uh, and right away from the beginning of John 1, you get this Genesis 1-1 language, right? In the beginning. Uh, John doesn't begin the story of, of Jesus in, in a manger, but he actually begins the story of Jesus writing about the beginning of creation, the beginning of all things. Jesus is the word who was there at the beginning, right? He was there in the Genesis 1-1 moment. Notice how John says this. He doesn't say in the beginning the word was created. It doesn't say Jesus became the word. He says Jesus actually was the word, right? Jesus didn't come into being at creation. He didn't become, but he was already there. Jesus was present there at creation, and this statement actually anticipates other places where John in his gospel tends to emphasize that Jesus was pre-existing creation. You know, in, in chapter 8 uh, of John, Jesus says that before Abraham was, I am. Right? Jesus borrowing the words spoken to Moses that Jesus is the I am. And not only Jesus is present, right, but be coming before creation, but we find he's actually the agent of creation. In verse 3, it says, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So by, by Jesus, all things were made, right? Jesus is, is the word, the word that brought things, all things into being, the words that God spoke and, and, and brought creation about, that is Jesus. Jesus, God's word, which has power. You know, this, this word for word in Greek is, is logos and in, 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 the, in Greek. And for the Jewish people, God's logos, his word, has great power. You know, Psalm 33 speaks about this. He says that, that God's word speaks the heavens into being, or Psalm 107 proclaims that God sends forth his word, his logos, to heal his people. And what this is telling us about Jesus, the word, is that Jesus is more than just a, a prophet. He's more than just a teacher sent to speak God's word and to speak these truths. But Jesus actually is God's word, in the flesh and bone, and all that power with it. The word of God, we find, also has a special relationship. It says the word was... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So this Word of God has this special relationship with God. Here we find that the Word is with God. You know, this idea of being with God is so important that John actually uses this phrase twice. He says it here in, in verse 1, that the Word was with God. And then again in verse 2, he says, He was in the beginning with God. This is an important aspect that John is trying to show us, that the Word has this special relationship with the living God. Right, to be with God is to be near him. It's to be in union with him, to have a relationship. And this is Jesus. Jesus is the word. The word that was bringing all creation into being. The word that has always existed. The word that has always been with God in relationship with him. And then John says something actually very strange about the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. 
It's the second thing about we've learned about Jesus. Jesus is the Word, and Jesus actually is God. Not only is the Word with God, but the Word is God. And here in these opening couple verses in the Gospel of John, you find that the, the beginnings of the important doctrine of the Trinity being fleshed out because the, the idea that Jesus is with God that distinguishes him from God. Or even though he has a close relationship with him, Jesus, the Word, is his own person. But when you say he was God, it, it makes it clear that, that the Word also shares the very nature of God. Right? In one verse, we have the basic building blocks of the two most important doctrines of our faith. The doctrine of the Trinity, right? That Christ both is with God and God. And the doctrine of Christ, right? That Jesus is fully God and fully man. In fact, you can't understand the incarnation without these building blocks. And so as we discover Jesus here, we find that, that the story of Jesus actually doesn't begin in the manger, but his story actually begins before creation. Right? Jesus is not a created person, but he is the word who actually created. He is the word who was with God, the word who was God. And John is inviting you and I, as we consider the incarnation, to peer into these two divine mysteries at once. The mystery of the Trinity and the mystery of the incarnation. And as we peer at these mysteries, the good news is that you don't have to solve these mysteries to appreciate them. John isn't giving you and I puzzles to be solved, but he's given us portraits of Jesus that we ought to admire. As we peer into these mysteries, as John unfolds them for us in his gospel, they get stranger and a little more, and, and more beautiful as we consider how Jesus came. This is the second question we're going to ask is, how did Jesus come? Well, Jesus comes and introduces himself to us by actually descending to us. How does Jesus come? He comes through his great descent. And I think there's two types of descents happening here that Jesus is, is doing, accomplishing for us. And the first is this, that he descends into our flesh. He descends into our flesh. Look at verse 14 here. It says, and the word became flesh. And the word became flesh. You know, <clears throat> C.S. Lewis writes about the descent of Jesus like a, like a diver who's going down into the dark waters of the ocean to retrieve something special to him. And as you go into water, maybe you've never dived before, I, I never have, but if you've ever swam in a lake, you know, at, at, at the surface, things are light, but the, dark, the, the further you go down into the water, the darker it gets. The further you go down, you can feel the weight of the water. C.S. Lewis talks about how it's like a diver who descends. He, he leaves the sun and the, and the shore and the blue sky and descends into an ever-darkening water world. And Kevin Costner's there. So, you guys never see water world? Come on. Uh, made old. Uh, I'm, I'm up with these old references these days. Um, but you descend into this, this, to the water. You feel the pressure of the water weighing you down. And as you descend to the bottom... You grab the treasure that you, you came there for, and you begin to, you're sent up back into the light, back into the, the blue skies, back into the world with green grass and the fresh air. And this is a, a kind of a picture of what it looks like for Jesus to descend us as he descends into our, our flesh, as he puts on our flesh. You know, theologians kind of point out the crassness of the language of flesh here. It's a strange word to choose. You could say the word became uh, a baby. Right? Or the word became a human being, or the word became a, a man, but he says the word became flesh. It's, it's a strange word to use. It, it, you know, in the Latin translation, it's where we get our word carne from. And it's an off putting word, you know, it's because this is where we find words like carnivore, or carnage, or carnal. Right? It's a strange way to describe the descent of Jesus. And 
It's, it's, he comes into flesh. It's crude. And yet this is also the root of where we get our word incarnation or the infleshing of Jesus. And it's crude because the word who is God and who created all things is stepping into his creation. Something crude is actually happening in his descent. He is stooping down. He is diving down, taking on the crudeness of our flesh. And it begins to allude to even the end of the story when, that, when the flesh that he puts on is torn. Because as Jesus descends into our flesh, he actually descends into our messes. As he descends into our flesh, he descends into our wilderness. And this is the second aspect of the descent that you see here, is that he descends into our wilderness. He descends into our wilderness. The second half of verse 14 says this. It says, the, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word dwelt among us. I'm sure many of you here know this, but the word for dwelt is literally that Jesus would take up residence with us. Or to borrow from the, the Hebrew version of this word, it's that he would tabernacle with us. So John is saying that as Jesus took on flesh, he came and tabernacled with us, which again takes us back to the beginning of the story uh, of the Bible in, in the book of Exodus. Uh, when you find the account of God's people, right? They were, they were in Egypt and they, were, and they you know, got out of Egypt and they were marching to the promised land. And what do we find is we find the people in the wilderness between Egypt and this promised land. And in that moment, God meets with his people and he instructs them to build a tabernacle. This tabernacle is this place where God can come and dwell with his people. In that, he's literally asking them, listen, build me a tent. As the rest of the people are dwelling in tents, so I want to dwell in a tent. Or he dwells with his people, with them in the wilderness, living with them where they are, as they are. And this is an amazing truth about our God, is that he isn't the one who's impervious to you and your struggles. Right? He isn't the God who has nice things that he withholds while his people struggle. But he is the God who literally puts your struggles on himself. He's the God who sets up tents among you, alongside you, sharing in your sufferings. So how did Jesus come to us? Well, he came to us through a great descent, taking on flesh, taking, and taking on the limitations of our flesh. He came dwelling among us, where we are, with us. And with the incarnation of Jesus, I think we learned something about how we ought to live Right, as Christ draws near and dwells among us, coming to us, so this is how we are to live in the world. This is first how we're supposed to live with each other in this room, reaching out to each other, learning about each other, incarnating with each other, encouraging each other in this. And this is also how we're meant to move out into the world as many incarnations. As we have been born of Christ, so we bring Christ with us into the world wherever we are. Right? We don't cloister ourselves off from it, but we go into it, taking on its flesh, dwelling in its wilderness. Why do we do this? Well, so that everyone around us might taste and see the glory of Christ as we have. Which leads to the last question here is why did this Jesus come? Why did this Jesus come and descend and take on our flesh and tabernacle among us? We find this answer begins here in the end of verse 14. And it says that, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This tells us is he came that you might see him. Jesus came that you would see him. He came to disclose himself to us, that we might know him, that Jesus is real. And in seeing him, that we would be transformed. 
And we need him to show himself to us because left to ourselves, we have all sorts of crazy ideas about who God is. Right? Have you ever had a conversation with someone in your head, maybe a boss or a friend, and that conversation with that person in your head is never really that accurate, right? When that happens to me, for, for me, the person I'm talking to in my head, that person's always kind of a jerk to me, always kind of mean, right? Well, we do similar things with God. We, we, we imagine him wrongly in our heads. And this is precisely why Jesus has come, right? He came to take on flesh and walked in the wilderness so that you could see him as he truly is. And as we see Jesus, we see God. We see who God is. And there's kind of three aspects to, to who God is that we see here. And the first is this, that we see his glory. Right, John's gospel actually builds up to a couple moments where Jesus' glory is seen. But one of the more obvious places is the transfiguration moment. When Jesus is radiating the glory of God and the disciples who are with him are glowing from the radiating glory of, Je of Jesus just like Moses did when he came down from the mountain. This idea is that to see Jesus is to gaze upon the glory of God. Right, he is our hope of glory in flesh. And what is the hope of glory that you and I have? Well, it's the future. It's a heavenly future. Right, the hope of our future is the hope of glory. And heaven is not this place of harps and wings and halos and pearly gates, but heaven is the place where God's glory radiates. Heaven is seen on the face of Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God, and in seeing Jesus, we have seen heaven take up residence on earth. So the first thing he wants to, us to see is his glory, that he is our future hope of glory. And not only do we see his glory when we see Jesus, but we see his grace, right? Jesus is the grace of God, grace, which is unmerited favor. Jesus, who stoops down from heaven, taking on flesh, not coming because you and I earned it. He doesn't descend because we get our prayers just right. He descends because this is who he is. He is the God of grace. And as we see Jesus coming to save his children, as Jesus comes to save his children from their sin, we see his grace putting on flesh. That Jesus is the God who is near so that you can experience the grace of God. He wants you to see this grace. And thirdly, we see here his truth. He wants us to see his truth. Jesus is the word of truth, and not only does he speak truth as, as the word, he is the incarnate truth. You know, if there's one phrase that always makes me uh, a little annoyed or a lot annoyed, it's the phrase when someone says, well, that's just my truth. Uh, you know, as if claiming something to be true makes it true. Uh, but Jesus is the actual truth. He is the eternal truth, the truth that wins out against any competing version of truth. Jesus wants you to look to him, to look at him, and to put to death any contrary truth that you hold to and cling to him, the one truth. Right, the place we see his glory and his grace and his truth most fully on display, where they all come together, is, is actually not when he first puts on flesh, but when his flesh is being ripped off on the cross. Right, it's where he is most humiliated on the cross where he is you know, at the bottom of the ocean, so to speak. It's at that moment where he's actually most glorified. It's at that moment when his grace is on full display. It's at that moment when his word of truth rings through creation because through the tearing of his flesh, through his death and burial and resurrection and, and ascension, his blood speaks a better word, a word that brings about and births new creation. And this is why he has come. 
that you and I would see his glory, that we would see his grace, that we would see his truth, and in seeing these things, that we would be a transformed people, transformed into heavenly beings ourselves, and as a church, you know, we are the body of Christ, right? We, are, we as a church are the infleshing of Christ to the world, meant to display his glory, meant to, meant to display his grace, meant, grace meant, meant to display his truth to a dying world. This is why Jesus has come, that we would see it, that we would see these things. And as we consider these truths on this Christmas morning, before we can go out and display these truths to others, I think we're first called to come and marvel. Marvel at these mysteries, marvel at the grace, marvel that our God has come that you might know him and be made new. And because it's only in seeing Jesus truly that we are transformed and made into his body, his flesh. The question for us this morning is, do you see him? Do you see Jesus? You know, when you listen to these stories and hear about him, do you see who he really is? Because it's possible to know a lot of things about Jesus, to be curious about him, to respect him, and to not recognize that Jesus is showing us himself and inviting us to know him. And a friend of mine tells a story from a book that he was reading about a man named Bill Crawford, who was in the late 1970s, he was a janitor at the Air Force Academy, and he was a quiet man, he was going about his business doing janitor things, he was cleaning toilets, emptying trash, vacuuming up after messes, and every now and then a young man or woman in the academy would come up and uh, notice him and say hi, but not that often, and one day there was a cadet that was preparing for a paper that he was writing on World War II. And he came across a book and, and these stories that, that told the story of, of someone named, of a private, William Crawford. William Crawford who fought in the 36th Infantry Division. And the young private, you know, was, as he was doing this study, he was reading about him. It, it read that this young private, William Crawford, ran into the teeth of the enemy, not once, but, but twice, to save uh, his fellow platoon members who were pinned down. And because of this uh, particular act, uh, this man was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor, right, the highest honor that the military gives out. And as this cadet was reading this, he thought to himself, William Crawford, surely this can't be Bill, who's the janitor. Uh, but he's like, I should probably go check that out. And so he gets his friends together, and they find Bill in the bathroom doing what he does, cleaning. And they say, Bill, and he holds up the article that he was reading about him. Is this you? And so Bill nonchalantly kind of takes the article and looks it over. And he looks up. He says, yeah, yeah, that's me. And they kind of go wild. You know, they're starstruck a little bit. And, uh, and then sh shortly after news, you know, of this, of who Bill is, kind of reaches the, the ends of campus. And all of a sudden, Bill is now invited to all the, the special events. You know, he comes in his dark blue suit and he's a seat of honor and and now every time the, the cadets see him in the hallway, they greet him with, sir, how are you doing, sir? Everyone's happy to get to know this man. There's this interesting question there, well, what has changed? Bill hadn't changed. His Medal of Honor was still wrapped in a sock in his sock drawer. He was still going about quietly doing his business. What had changed is that the cadets suddenly realized who this was, right? And Christmas is a time when we get to look and remember who Jesus really was. God descending, taking on flesh, tasting the wilderness that we walk in as he tabernacled among us that we might know him and what he has done for us.
And when we know that and treasure that, everything changes. May we be a people who see him. May we marvel. May we experience the transformation that comes from beholding the glory of God. And may we go out into the world as people who have been transformed and who can't help but radiate the glory of Christ. Amen. Pray with me. Holy God, we give you thanks for your word. Your word, which isn't some distant, off, off in, the, in the world thing, but your word, which is near to us. Your word, which doesn't just live on the pages, but your word, which dwells inside us by the power of your spirit, making us alive. I pray that you would help us in this Christmas season as we enjoy the festivities, that we'd remember who you are, that we would marvel at the grace that has come into this world. Transform us and form us into the image of Christ, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.